I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 7th, 2017. Coming up, our guest Karen Cooper, a professor at North Carolina State University, will discuss her new book about citizen science. The book shows how scientists around the country, including here in Colorado, are playing a critical role in scientific research about everything from butterflies and bees to weather forecasting and water quality. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. For centuries, philosophers and scientists have wondered why we spend so much time sleeping. A new study, published last week in the journal Science, shed some light on this perennial question. Our brains have over 16 billion neurons in the cortex, the region responsible for conscious thought and a lot of learning and memory. Each of these 16 billion can make hundreds or even thousands of connections, called synapses. When you learn something, you build or reinforce synapses. The stronger the learned association, the stronger the synapse. So it turns out, the strength of a synapse corresponds to the physical size of the connection between the neurons. And now, the size of the synaptic connections are really, really tiny, and can only be measured with an electron microscope, which is exactly what the scientists use to measure them. They measured 7,000 synapses in mouse motor and sensory cortices using three-dimensional electron microscopy. The size of the synaptic connection was 20% smaller after sleep compared with the size while the mouse was awake. The finding supports the hypothesis that a major function of sleep is to prune out the things you have learned during the day that aren't important. Kind of like cleaning the garage. The message of this story? Get more sleep. On the science calendar... Check out a curious talk on digestion and starches next Monday night at Café Scientifique, Boulder. Until about 15 years ago, it was believed that all starches were digested in the upper digestive tract and absorbed as sugars into the bloodstream. But more recently, it has become clear that some starches resist digestion in the upper digestive tract and so pass into the large bowel relatively intact. These starches are referred to as resistant starches, or RS. In the bowel, RS is highly fermentable. It has the properties of both soluble and insoluble fiber and thus has been studied widely for its ex- effects on bowel health. For instance, RS has been shown to prevent the proliferation of precancerous bowel, tension, uh, bowel lesions in rats. The metabolic benefits of RS include lowering blood sugar levels and increasing fat burning after eating meals. Dr. Janine Higgins, an associate professor of pediatrics in the University of Colorado School of Medicine, will give the talk. It starts at 6 p.m., but refreshments and mingling start at 5.30. The, nec- the event next Monday, February 13th, will be held at the Bohemian Beer Garden, 2017 13th Street in Boulder. For more information, search Café Scientifique Boulder. Science is often considered a serious endeavor with little room for humor, but like all aspects of life, of course, it's actually full of humor. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science reminds us that science and humor do go together, in this case, in stand-up comedy. This Friday night, February 10th, come cheer on local scientists turned comedians at the museum as they perform stand-up and wax hilarious about the nuances of their work. This is a unique comedy night for science fans that will get you laughing with, perhaps, and at 
some of the biggest brains in town, and this is a big town for science. The event at the museum will start at 7.30. It's for adults age 18 or older, as alcohol will be available. For more info, go to dmns.org. The event is called Peer Review, Stand Up for Science, and perhaps there's never been a more critical time to stand up for science and scientists. To learn more about the group of scientist comedians, go to peer-review, that's R-E-V-U-E, dot com. And a bit further down on the science calendar, for fans of the new frontiers of engineering, on February 17th, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science premieres a new documentary called Dream Big, Engineering Our World. The documentary features Avery Bang, who is CEO of the Denver-based charity Bridges to Prosperity. The documentary shows how engineers like Avery Bang and others create new innovative solutions to improve our lives and create a sustainable future. To learn more about this documentary, go to dreambigfilm.com. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. For those of you who are interested in birds or butterflies or weather forecasting or nature in general, for that matter, but think you need a degree in science to contribute to important scientific discoveries, our guest today aims to prove you wrong. Karen, Carp- Karen Cooper is an associate professor of forestry and environmental resources at North Carolina State University. She studies bird ecology, conservation, and management through the use of citizen science. Dr. Cooper, wrote a book recently called Citizen Science, How Ordinary People Are Changing the Face of Discovery. It highlights many examples of inspiring and important citizen science efforts, including here in Colorado. The term citizen science basically refers to projects in which volunteers and even patients, so-called citizen scientists, partner with professional scientists to answer real-world questions. Dr. Cooper is also director of a nonprofit organization called SciStarter, Think of it as a Match.com, helping interested volunteers find projects they can work on and helping scientists recruit those volunteers. Our guest joins us via phone from North Carolina. Dr. Cooper, welcome to How on Earth. Citizen science for many, I think, seems like a fairly recent trend, but it actually has super deep roots, at least in U.S. history, as you allude to in the book. Can you talk about that a bit? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it does go back quite far um, to the mid and late 1800s, I would say, or even, actually, you could go even back further to Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> because... Uh, and what was he doing? He, he, was, he was a weather bug, and so he was exceedingly interested in weather data, and he himself collected data on the weather twice a day, um, and he had a plan to deputize one person in every county uh, to collect weather data twice a day also, because he wanted to collect data for broad-scale patterns. I mean, it was a new country, right? And he wanted information about the climate and the weather patterns here. Um, And he knew that the only way to do that was to enlist the help, you know, of all the new citizens. So he actually had quite a vision for citizen science. Of course, it wasn't called that then. And um, other things got in the way from him implementing his plan specifically. Yeah, just a few. Although, like, you know, Revolutionary War. (laughs) But he did... um, but then later, much later in the 18, 
80s, really. There, there then was uh, citizen science established for collecting weather data, and some of our oldest land-based weather data comes from that program, the Cooperative Weather Observer Network that's um, run by NOAA. Right. We'll talk about that. That's a big presence in Colorado here. Um, and the term was actually coined quite recently in the 1990s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of the um, folks you know, who really helped make the term popular with its current meaning is Rick Bonney at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And, um, yeah, and citizen science has always been really strong, especially in ornithology, you know, as well as astronomy and in entomology. There's some, some fields where there's, that are really based on making observations of nature where there's always been a really strong um, backbone of citizen science that's led to a lot of discoveries. And that's what I like to emphasize too is that you know it's for you know it seems it is really fun to do and it and it can be super important for communities to do but it always has led to exceedingly important scientific findings um yeah, and I think mm, probably many people most know or have heard of anyway the Christmas bird count speaking of Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um basically what is it? I mean it sounds like a lot of fun. You go in your backyard or you go to a specific spot and count birds, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, there's certain protocols that go along with it with how um observations are collected and collated and whatnot for citizen science projects. Um and that little bit you know, but it does rely on people who ha- who are doing this as their hobby most of the time. That's you know that's often who's participating, and um, but adding a little bit of standardization into the routine of how people carry out those hobbies and make their observations just makes the those observations more scientifically rigorous and more useful for more types of research questions. Right, and I kind of want to get this out of the way because I think a lot of people, including myself, have wondered over the years, partly from conversations with scientists that. By and large, a lot of these efforts have been great for PR and maybe great for inspiring students to get, you know, to pursue STEM education and careers in STEM, but sort of muddled data in terms of its usefulness for peer-reviewed research. Is there some credence to that? Um, no. It, well, it's very useful for peer-reviewed research. There's... Um, like, for example, I looked at what we know about migratory birds and climate change. Like, I systematically looked at, like, what has been published about that. And, um, and with some colleagues, and what we found was that about half of what we know today about migratory birds and climate change, how they're influenced by climate change, um, that we wouldn't know that if it weren't for citizen science <laughs> efforts of people um, sharing observations, helping band birds, um, helping you know, do different counts on birds and monitor nests and all kinds of activities like that. Um, so there's and, – and what's interesting, too, is that it's not just people going into STEM careers that do it. It's really right. having science be a part of one's daily life. I mean, there's so much divide some, seemingly sometimes between scientists and the public. And, and here there are these activities, you know, that, that people have common interests in like observing the weather, observing birds, you know, observing the stars, all those kinds of things that really can bring these communities together. And um, anyway, and it's, I think that's a really powerful thing, um, both for discovery and for people being able to really enjoy it and value it. And then personally for you as a scientist, how did you get involved? Because you've done your own or been involved in projects on house sparrows mm-hmm. and such. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I'm an ornithologist, um, 
and I and so I partner with bird watchers quite a bit, um, so that because the questions that I'm most interested in oftentimes are are at really large scales. So it, it's not that citizen science is replacing what I would do as an individual scientist. It's allowing me and other researchers to ask questions that we really couldn't ask otherwise or that we couldn't even answer otherwise because they're at large scales, like across the continent, like what are these big-scale patterns, or over long time frames, right? So there's observations that go back decades and decades. So drill us yeah. so, right down into the House Sparrow project. Did it start oh, okay. as a fairly small geographic scale study, mm-hmm. and then you um, figured, wow, with crowdsourcing, essentially this is a kind of crowdsourcing, right? You could get a lot more <laughs> spatial and temporal data. Yeah. Well, with the sparrow swap, yeah, we wanted to get, we were interested in um, how bird eggs uh, reflect sort of the environmental conditions upon which they were laid, um, environmental conditions in terms of climate kind of variables and also contaminants. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to build an egg collection, and how sparrows are non they're not they're an invasive species in the US and so they're not protected by law and a lot of people consider them a pest and bird watchers um, a subgroup of especially bluebirders who monitor bluebird nests boxes um, they had been as a management practice kind of whenever they see house sparrow eggs they were tossing them away and so yeah we designed the project to say hey you know don't toss them away make use of them for research and donate them to our research collection at the museum. I'm jointly appointed at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And so, so we're developing a really large egg collection and, and using that to look at how these eggs could be indicators of environmental contaminants. And then at the same time, we're working with the bird watching community to really develop best practices for how to manage the house sparrows. Because they do consider them a pest. They take over nest boxes of native species, and and people would like to minimize their damage. So in this so case, are you saying cats? In this case, are you saying cats are okay? Oh, because <laughs> yeah. they do kill sparrows. Yeah. yeah, I'm not. You're not going to get me on record with that. <laughs> say that. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Well, and so also, do people send in very carefully the egg samples? Oh yeah, yeah. We we did. Uh, Seems like the had... defect rate would be high. Yeah, we had. Um, well, the ship, shipping them is tricky to ship to ship eggs intact. I would imagine. Tricky. And, yeah, and we enlisted volu- You know, some of our super dedicated volunteers um, in doing a lot of trials <laughs> with different shipping techniques until we really honed honed in honed in on one that worked really well, which actually involves packaging them in an Easter egg <laughs> between two <laughs> sort of pieces of cellophane that keeps the the little egg immobile inside this bigger plastic egg. Um, so yeah, we get we get cartons full of Easter eggs, <laughs> which are full of house sparrow eggs, um, every spring now. Fascinating. Well, for those of you who are joining us a bit late, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran, and our guest is Dr. Karen Cooper from North Carolina State University, and we're discussing the merits and some challenges of citizen science. So, welcome back. So, there are many different examples, and not just like you said, those who might want to go into science or birders, for instance. I was quite struck by one example you have in the book where prisoners in eastern Washington are really heavily and consequentially, in a good way, involved in butterfly monitoring. Talk about that some. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the biggest puzzles, um, you know, for decades was about monarch butterflies and where they go in the winter. And this was monarchs primarily in the east 
where people investigated this um, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, and and really it was volunteer efforts of tagging monarchs, um, like in the U.S. and southern Canada, that finally led to the discovery that monarch butterflies, these little tiny things, um, migrate, you know, 4,000 miles all the way to Mexico in the winter. Um, but it's still been a mystery as to what, as to where all the monarchs in the West go. And people think they go to California, but it's uh-huh. not for sure because there's very limited data. Because the, the monarchs there are much, they're not, they're not as dense a population. So um, really the only way to do a viable tagging program is to bring in eggs from the wild and raise them um, in captivity and then tag and release them. So that and prisoners do no captivity, so they actually raise them <laughs> at the prison. They raise them in the prison, and they and see the thing is, is that really what it takes. You know, it's not particularly special skills, other than a really a lot of time and attention to pay. You know, to pay to maintaining and um, milkweed and and keeping. You know, and basically nurturing these um, caterpillars until they morph into uh, the monarchs, and then tagging and releasing them. And so, yeah, it's cliche, but these prisoners. What they have on their side is time, and so they really can raise these better than any professionals can. They they have, and um, anyway, so that that program, uh, yeah, has been successful both in releasing the monarchs, and there have been some resightings, um, which do look like they're going. Those monarchs are heading toward California, and um, you know, and then it also seems like you know it's just really beneficial for the people who participate, um, and I've spoken to the people that run the program and some who you know have run the same kind of program with kids with senior citizens and with prisoners and they say that no matter who it is who's really handling these monarchs it's they always see the same expressions of joy and awe you know and marvel at these organisms Mm, so really some social and psychological effects as well Mm -hmm. and so far we've been talking about projects that scientists initiate so-called citizens get involved in. There are also many that stem from the communities themselves. Like I'm thinking of Flint, Michigan, where an activist, and you allude to that in the book as well, uh, noticed the drinking water contamination, in fact, affecting her whole family, and eventually going to a researcher at Virginia Tech. We've had him on the show, actually, Mark Edwards. Um, Mm -hmm. And talk about that. How effective has that been? I mean, there are many other cases as well, but where it's a community or or members of the community themselves who are initiating. And then what's the role of a scientist? Right. Yeah, there's there's many cases where communities um, need access to science, and that's what citizen science provides, where where communities find themselves in a situation where you know, they're facing some, well, typically some kind of pollution, and um, and often the burden is on them to show that it's a problem and the extent of it and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, oftentimes communities will partner with scientists, and they're fortunate when they can find scientists who will be responsive to that and will help with that. Because um, a lot of times it's hard to actually have that mesh with sort of the constraints that are on scientists in terms of, the types of research they do and the types of knowledge that they advance, meaning you know, scientists are looking to do things that lead to peer-reviewed publications. Yeah. Um, and what communities need are really basic information about their community that is valid, you know, valid uh, data 
that they can take to policymakers um, and say, hey, we have a problem, <laughs> we need your help. You know, they can take it to lawmakers, they can take it to courts um, and other ways to really make for change and improve the health of their environment. Yeah, and so um, I wanted to jump also from Flint and other places to Colorado. We've got a couple minutes left, but um, Colorado is actually pretty prominently featured in your book, including this one ongoing project that began, I think, 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the acronym? Coco Raz? It's Raz? the yeah. Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Network, started yeah, by right. our former state climatologist, Nolan Duskin, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is a, a super popular program. It started in Colorado after you guys had a, a massive um, storm that led to a lot of damage and even some deaths. From um, and And what happened really was it was a this really shined the spotlight on the fact that nothing beats a gauge on the ground, <laughs> a rain gauge on the ground. You know, we have a lot of high-tech ways, you know, with radar and whatnot to look at storms and precipitation, but precipitation really is so highly localized. You know, I mean, you, you, it can rain on one side of the street and not be raining on the other side of the street. It's so highly localized, it makes it a real challenge to model and to forecast. And so um, what Nolan Duskin set up was this network where, as many people as he could recruit would put rain gauges in their backyards, which is exactly what Thomas Jefferson had wanted. It and, all comes um, around. It all comes around. And, and bringing those data together has been useful for so many. Um, I mean, they make the data publicly available, and there's a lot of even industries that use it, um, uh, you know, for a lot of different purposes, from insurance companies, you know, to... Um, people that repair rooftops <laughs> to, you know, mosquito control, like all kinds of um, groups find it practical purposes in knowing more about precipitation patterns, um, you know, as well as helping just the field of meteorology and whatnot. Yeah, but fascinating. Anyway, and works. so how yeah. can people, because this is ongoing, how can people get involved in that? And for that matter, other projects to find, yeah. you know, to, to sort of identify what they're interested in and then find a match. Yeah. Well, I'm, so right now there are literally thousands of citizen science projects out there, so it can seem a little overwhelming to, like, say, oh, my gosh, how do I find what's best for me? Um, and the, the, real, the place to go is SciStarter.com, and on there um, there's a project finder, and with it you can search by activity, by topic of interest, by your geographic location, you know, whatever you want. Um, and, you know, we feature recommended projects. And anyway, it can really help people navigate this really rapidly changing world of citizen science um, and find where you can be of most help and what projects can be of most help to you. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. We'll do plenty more of this in the future. Great. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Karen Cooper, author of the recently published book called Citizen Science, How Ordinary People Are Changing the Face of Discovery. She's an associate professor of forestry and environmental research resources at North Carolina State University. So we'll post some of these references on our website for people who are interested in being citizen scientists, including the link to Dr. Cooper's organization called SciStarter. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Alejandro Soto and was engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Victor Lewis Trio. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Susan Moran.